Our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Psalm 130. This is the last of the five psalms that we're considering in the month of August. And it's also the shortest. These eight verses of Psalm 130 that Samantha read earlier for us divide into four pairs or couplets, but we'll just consider it in two parts. There's just two halves to the psalm. In the first half, in verses one to four, the psalmist addresses God. And then in the second half of the psalm, in verses five to eight, the psalmist addresses God's people. And they're connected, these two halves, because it's out of the personal experience of the psalmist in verses 1 to 4 that he addresses the people of God in verses 5 to 8. Which means there are different levels at which this psalm can speak to us, I think. It may speak to us as individuals who find ourselves in a similar situation to the psalmist. And it may speak to us as the corporate body of Christ as we're urged to hope in the Lord for our salvation. If you have your Bible and want to follow along, we begin in verses one to four as the psalmist addresses God, which in Psalm 130 means that we begin in the depths. Verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The psalmist is in deep trouble. The depths is language that's short for the depths of the sea. Five times in the Old Testament, that wording of the depths is used. And each time it has a negative connotation, implying ultimately death or destruction. It, it can, within the Old Testament, be used literally to mean the sense of being sunk as one who's gone down with a ship on the waters is doomed to destruction. But it often takes on a metaphorical meaning as it does in Jonah chapter two. Actually in Jonah chapter two, Jonah is literally in the depths of the sea. But the point is that he equates that to being apart from God. Listen to Jonah chapter two, verses one to six his cry from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, Jonah says. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now when the psalmist here says he cries out of the depths, it doesn't have to mean that he's literally deep in the sea, like Jonah was. But the language used does evoke that imagery of the watery grave or the chaotic abyss. He's like the psalmist who cries out in Psalm 69, Verses 1 and 2, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over. The psalmist in Psalm 130 is like that. He's drowning, drowning in distress, overwhelmed, sucked down by the bottomless waters of trouble. But then finding himself there, the psalmist knows what he must do. Humanly speaking, there seems to be no way out. He should be giving up all hope, but instead he cries out to the Lord. He knows Israel's covenant God, the Lord. Perhaps he knew the words of Isaiah chapter 51, verse 10, which uses the same language when it says, was it not you, O Lord, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? When you're in the depths, there's only one who can help. I cried to you, O Lord, verse 1 concludes. And notice if you have your Bible there, that the word Lord at the end of verse 1 is in all capital letters, or should be. That's because the Hebrew here is the name Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses as I am who I am, Israel's faithful covenant God, the one who did make the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. It's instructive for us that at the point when the psalmist finds himself personally at the greatest distance possible from the Lord, for nothing can be farther from the heavens above than the depths of the sea beneath. It's then when he's experiencing his greatest alienation from God that the psalmist still knows that the Lord can hear him. That's why he makes a direct appeal for deliverance. Oh Lord, Hear my voice, verse 2 begins. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist is not questioning whether the Lord is able to hear him. The issue here is whether the Lord will choose to pay attention. That's why the psalmist speaks here in a way that reveals he has a relationship with the Lord and that he understands who the Lord is. If you're looking carefully, you'll note that the word Lord in verse 2 is not in all capital letters as it is in verse 1. That's because here in verse 2, it isn't the covenant name of God, Yahweh, but rather Adonai. The word meaning simply Lord or Master. According to one scholar I read this week, Adonai can be used in the introduction of laments or confessions of trust when the petitioner seeks to highlight the personal relationship he or she has with God. Specifically, this use of Adonai emphasizes that the relationship is one of the servant now coming and approaching the master. His request is in hand. He fully understands that the only one with the power to fulfill his request is the Lord. 
And if you just look through the rest of this psalm, you'll see that the psalmist does this exact thing three times. In each of the first three couplets, there's this movement from Yahweh, Lord, in all capital letters, to Adonai, Lord, in lowercase letters. It's there in verses 1 and 2. It's there in verse 3, and it's there in verses 5 and 6. Meaning that all through Psalm 130, the psalmist emphasizes both the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, as well as the fact that the Lord is Israel's master. That it's in the Lord's power that life and death itself is to be found. That it's the Lord alone who can help when we find ourselves in the depths. Which brings us then to the nature of the psalmist's request at the end of verse 2. We're never told exactly what the psalmist's circumstances are or why his experience is one of being in the depths. But we begin to get a sense of that from the end of verse 2 and then what comes next in verses 3 and 4. Let your mercy be attentive to the voice of my uh, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy, verse 2 concludes. Where is that mercy of the Lord to be found? Well, according to verses 3 and 4, the mercy for which the psalmist pleads here is the Lord's forgiveness. If you, O Lord, it's Yahweh, covenant name for God, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, Adonai, the master, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The details are never spelled out for us, but in some way the trouble in which the psalmist finds himself is connected to his sin. The term that the psalm uses here that's translated iniquities in the ESV is an interesting one. As one commentator says, in reference to sin, the term here carries with it a complex meaning. It encompasses not just the action deemed sin, but also the damage it creates and the consequences it threatens. So think about that. This is sin with all of its damaging impact and consequences to ourselves, to others, to our relationship with the Lord. One scholar describes the word used here as, quote, the flood of wrong and its consequences that sweeps life along and from which there is no escape apart from a liberating, rescuing redemption. The term is in the plural there in verse 3, probably meaning it's a summary for all the sins committed against God. The psalmist here is not confessing to a sin, but rather to all sins that leave him broken, estranged from God and in need of forgiveness. And I wonder if you yourself have ever become keenly aware 
of all that your sin has meant, all the damage it has done. And becoming aware of that, felt trapped by it. Or caught by an overwhelming sense of shame or guilt. Or by painful circumstances that have come upon you, perhaps through the sinful activity. Or perhaps it's by the judgment of others against you. If so, then perhaps you know what the psalmist means when he says he is in the depths. This is what sin does in our lives and in our world, brothers and sisters. And so the psalmist looks to the only place he can, to the Lord himself. It is the Lord who must hear his pleas for mercy. As one author puts it, release from the depths of despair and the abyss of sin and guilt comes not from the self-help of the one caught in that condition. It is to be found in the God whose nature it is to forgive. Notice how the psalmist puts this in verse 4. With you, he says, there is forgiveness. The sense is that forgiveness is something that accompanies the Lord. That wherever the Lord goes, forgiveness comes along. Because it's part of the Lord's character, of his identity. The psalmist's point isn't just that Yahweh alone has the authority to forgive sins. It's that he has the disposition to do so. The character of God is neither bent against us, nor is it just neutral in his justice and righteousness, but rather it's bent towards us in grace and mercy. And how wonderful that is, for as the psalmist puts it, if the Lord were to mark iniquities, if he were to keep a record of them, to keep them in mind all the time, if he were to keep a tally of all of our sin, then indeed, who could stand? The idea there could be either no one can then stand in the presence of God to enjoy the blessings of God's presence, or the idea might be that no one could stand under the judgment of God. Either way, the point's essentially the same in the end. That without the Lord's mercy, we'd all be forever in the depths. Were it not for God's disposition to forgive, humanity would have no hope of enduring. But with God, there is forgiveness. And the result is that he is feared, as the ESV translates it at the end of verse 4. But the NIV deals with this differently. Verse 4 in the NIV reads, But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve. That's helpful, I think, because the point here is not that we have a servile fear of the Lord, but that we relate to the Lord with reverence, as the relationship once broken by sin is restored, not by us, but by the God with whom there is forgiveness. As one Old Testament scholar puts it, forgiveness is the expression of God's grace 
of God's freedom to be gracious to whom I will be gracious, to show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. God's forgiveness is a wonderful gift, the appropriate response to which is wonder and praise. And in fact, the psalmist is so sure that with the Lord there is forgiveness that he continues on in verse 5 in the second half of the psalm to address God's people with a word of personal testimony. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You'll notice the psalmist is no longer addressing God directly, as he had done in verses 1 to 4. Now his words are for the people, as he expresses his confident hope that he waits patiently expecting the Lord to act. Two times we read, my soul waits. And his waiting is not in vain. In verse 5, the psalmist uses words for waiting and hoping three times, all with the sense of hopeful expectation. The two verbs, to wait and to hope here, are synonymous and are used to speak of trust that must and deal with the fact that there is to be time, that it requires a stance of enduring in the present in anticipation of vindication to come in the future. In other words, it's hopeful expectation. Not because the psalmist feels hopeful necessarily, he's in the depths, but because it's the Lord himself for whom the psalmist waits. And it's in the Lord's word that he hopes. Now, that word could be a word of pardon from the Lord, but I think most likely that what's in focus here is God's covenant word of promise, his covenant promises of salvation. And that's what the psalmist is so confident in, the words of promise that will come true because they were spoken by the faithful God of the covenant, promises to be God to his people, to dwell with them forever, to forgive their sin. It's promises such as the one from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where the Lord promises Israel, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The psalmist has an eager, active anticipation that God will bring his covenant promises of salvation to pass. And so in verse 6, he says again, my soul waits for the Lord. Then he adds, more than watchmen for the morning. And then for emphasis, he says it again, more than watchmen for the morning. Now in ancient cities, guards were stationed on the walls to keep watch over the city during the night. The image here is of the sentry, or the watchman, standing guard as the night goes on, eagerly anticipating that morning light. And in fact, compared with such watchmen yearning for the morning, the psalmist is even more eager for God's new morning to arrive. 
Isaiah's words again come to mind, this time from Isaiah 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This has been the steady climb of our psalm. The psalmist may be in the depths. It may still be night for him. He may still be surrounded by darkness. But out of the depths he has cried to the Lord, the one with whom there is forgiveness. Now he eagerly waits for the Lord to come through for him, to fulfill his word of promise. Now he waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. And the point is that like those watchmen, the psalmist knows that the morning will surely come. The watchmen with whom the psalmist compares himself weren't in doubt regarding the fact that the night would actually end and the morning would actually arrive. Neither does the psalmist doubt it. The Lord will be true to his word. Elsewhere in the Psalter, the morning symbolizes the time of God's intervention in the lives of his people. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. The psalmist's waiting isn't in vain. His is a sure confidence, which is why we come finally to the exhortation of verses 7 and 8. After his personal testimony, the psalmist turns to Israel, calling them to the same thing he has experienced. O Israel, hope in the Lord. With the Lord, there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Most scholars seem to think that by the time this psalm was composed, Israel had suffered through the exile in Babylon and had returned to a devastated Palestine that was inhabited now by foreign peoples who opposed them. That in other words, the nation of Israel itself was in the depths, much like the psalmist himself was. So he urges them, hope in the Lord for two reasons. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Now, Glenn talked about steadfast love in his sermon last week. It's the Hebrew word chesed, meaning covenant faithfulness. It's the Lord's love that never gives up on his people. As for plentiful redemption, the basic idea of redemption is to ransom. The verbal form means to buy the freedom of something or to pay an atonement price for something. It's language that was frequently applied to Israel's liberation out of Egypt. So that in other words, it's what the Lord has done for his people in the past and what he will do again. Only this time, their redemption will be from sin itself. Three times we have the expression, 
with you or with the Lord in this soul. In verse 4, we read, with you there is forgiveness. Now we add, with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. For the psalmist, these three are the face of hope amid the darkness of depths. The declaration at the end of Psalm 130 is one of a comprehensive and final redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In other words, he will pay the ransom for each and every iniquity and misery that they have caused. The Lord will himself set his people free from every enslavement. And you and I have the benefit of knowing how that would all come about. I wondered this week if it isn't Psalm 130, verse 8, that's behind what the angel said to Joseph concerning Mary in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, the angel declares, and you are to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. It is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption. Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He is the one who will redeem Israel. Redeem her from all his iniquities. I'm sure there's not anyone here who hasn't at some point felt that they are in the depths. Perhaps that's how you feel even today. If it is, then listen to this message of Psalm 130. Because it might be that we find ourselves inclined to turn away from God when we reflect on our own sins. Or when we ponder our own brokenness and failures and the impact of all of that in our lives and in the lives of others. And yet in those moments, when the darkness of the depths threatens to have the last word, the psalmist turns to God, directly to God, and cries out. Despite the darkness, the psalmist leans forward towards the God he knows, the one with whom there is forgiveness and steadfast love and plentiful redemption. The psalmist knows that the darkness of the depths is not life as God intended it, and that it will not be life as we will know it for eternity, when we'll stand in the presence of our faithful God who has redeemed us from all our iniquities. Brothers and sisters of Christ the King, hope in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.